Well, friends, would you please turn to 1 Chronicles chapter 16. We are going to be studying uh, that chapter today as the Lord allows. And we've been moving through the book of 1 Chronicles and last week we saw that David's efforts, his desire to bring the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. He tried it in chapter 13. Things didn't work out for one reason or another, which we looked at. But here now, in chapter 15 and 16, the ark makes its way to Jerusalem. 870 Levites or priests are involved in this process of transporting the ark or uh, bringing it to Jerusalem. And now it is set up. And as you look at chapter 16, verse 1, the story continues and it says, Now they brought in the ark of God and they set it inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And they offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before God. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord. And he distributed to all of Israel, both men and women, to each a loaf of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins. And so David here, he brings the ark. Now, we learned in First Chronicles 15 that before David set out, nothing was left to chance. He prepared a place for the ark, it says, chapter 15, verse 1, that he prepared a place for the ark of God. A tent was pitched for it. Now this tent, or another word is a tabernacle, it's not the tabernacle that you may recall that uh, was set up as they wandered through the wilderness. That's still in the town of Gideon uh, there. But this is just a tent that is set up, and it's designed for two purposes. One, it's to protect the ark from the elements, you know, the rain or whatever that's going to fall, it'll protect it from that. But it will also have the purpose of protecting the people from the ark, so to speak. So that no one just kind of goes stumbling up there, not knowing, you know, exactly what it is. So there's a big tent, there's a gate around it, there's gatekeepers that are around this particular ark uh, that is set, uh, set up. Now the ark has a home. David and the priest, they begin, as you see here, the priest, David is just standing there, they begin to offer their sacrifices here before this ark. And it's very important because uh, many of us, we come out of a background where sacrifices are made to statues and things like that. Um, but here they're not offering sacrifices to the statue or to the Ark of the Covenant, but they're, they're offering these sacrifices before it to what it represents. And remember, this represents the presence of God. So here in this particular three verses that we read, they bring two offerings. The first they bring is a burn offering. The second they bring is a peace offering. Now there's all sorts of offerings that are found in the Old Testament. If you've taken the time, if you read through the Old Testament, studied through the Old Testament, you know that consistently offerings are being mentioned. I went through and I, I just pulled out some of them. I don't believe this is an exhaustive list, but in Exodus 36 we read about something called a free will offering. There's also what is known as the meat offering or the meal offering in Leviticus. The sin offering found in Leviticus 5. Uh, the heave offering, or some of your versions will say the shove offering, and that has to do with the shoulder of the bull. Uh, the wave offering is another one that was waved before the Lord. There's in Leviticus 22, the bread offering. And then we also read about in Leviticus chapter 23, what is called the drink offering. Now, so there's lots and lots of types of offerings that were brought before the Lord. And each offering, uh, and the reason why you would bring an offering, is it was designed to say something slightly different to God in that person's act of worship. So for instance, we have the meal offering, also called the meat offering. The meal offering was, to, uh, was designed because meat and the meal is designed to provide each of us with our sustenance to live on. The purpose of the meal offering was to declare to God our total dependence on Him when we brought that particular offering. So I'm bringing my meal offering. This is what I live on. You know, I need this every day. But I bring this before the Lord to say, Lord, I am totally in need of you. That's what we're trying to communicate. That's an example in that one. So each offering was designed to communicate a different attitude of the worshiper's heart. So here in First Chronicles, we are introduced to perhaps the two most common offerings of the Old Testament. One is the burnt offering. The other is the peace offering. Now the burnt offering was a bull, and it was to be a bull that was without blemish, that was brought to the entrance of the tabernacle, or in this case the entrance to the tent that would lead to the Ark of the Covenant. The worshiper would put his hand upon the animal, and the priest would come and he would slay the animal or kill the animal 
in the process there. And the idea is, putting the hand on it, it's an act of identification. That it is because of my sin, it is because of who I am and where I am and my need as a worshiper that I need to identify that this animal is going to lose its life because of me. And then the animal, the dead animal, was placed into the fire and it was completely consumed. All aspects of the animal were completely consumed in the fire. And again, this signifies that the worshiper has surrendered his or her life completely to God. And it also symbolizes that God has completely accepted the sacrifice that they've brought. And then the worshiper can leave there and the barrier that was between them and God because of their sin has been lifted. It's been dealt with. It's been atoned for, is the word. Now the second type of offering that we see here and we see in the Scripture is what is called the peace offering. Now the peace offering will also be burned, but it's different from the burn offering because in the burn offering, the animal is totally consumed. In the peace offering, only portions of the animal are placed in the fire and the rest is saved, if you will, for a meal. So the portion of the animal, like uh, the fat and the kidneys and the liver of the animal, that sort of thing, that will be placed into the fire. And the rest of the animal will serve as a meal for the worshipers, for the priests that are on duty, and those sorts of things. And, and the symbolism in this particular one, it's not that the sacrifice is going to bring about a peace, but it's evidence that peace has come. And that's evidence in the fact that the people can sit down, they can enjoy a meal, essentially with God, if you want to think about it in that particular way. So the burnt offering will be to cover over or to atone for the people's sins, but what I'm trying to communicate in the peace offering is this idea that I have peace with God. I can have fellowship with Him and with others at this time. So the peace offering is a celebration. And when I compare the burn offering and the peace offering, it almost reminds us of the attitude of our hearts. Maybe you're like me. And how you approach Good Friday. You know how you approach Good Friday and it's, it's sort of like you feel bad like giggling on that day or laughing or doing anything because you, it, it seems like it should be a very serious day, a very somber day that you should be focused in on what Jesus did on the cross and that sort of thing. Compare that sense, that feeling. Am I the only one that thinks that way? No, okay, good. Uh, compare that feeling with Sunday morning on Easter. You know, and the kids wear, the, the girls wear the cute little dresses and the boys wear their little vests and ties and all that. And every, happy resurrection day, you know, and all these sorts of things. And indeed, or whatever we say, and he's risen indeed. And, and it's more of like this happier environment there because we have peace with God. The, the suffering of the cross has been conquered by the resurrection of Christ. That's how I would compare the burnt offering with the peace offering that is taking place here. Now, it's important before we move on. So I, I've listed about eight or ten different offerings that took place there uh, in the Old Testament. It's very important for us as we move on to remind ourselves of sort of New Testament hindsight. So you know how they say hindsight is 2020, and everybody knows what they'll do when the event's over, and they can look back, well, I would have done it this way, and well, you're very smart. You know, it, it, it reminds me of uh, Alex Trebek. You know, he thinks he's the smartest guy in the world. Well, the answers are right there in front of him. He's not the smartest guy in the world. You know, so hindsight is 2020, of course. And for us in the New Testament, looking back, we can kind of sense and understand what these sacrifices are for. So it's important for us to remind ourselves that these sacrifices can never have the effect of permanently removing sin or the penalty of sin for a person. And at best, the example that we get from the Scriptures is that they temporarily cover over sin for the person. The author of the book of Hebrews, he explains it this way. This is in Hebrews chapter 10. He says, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never be the same, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sin every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Hebrews chapter 9. When Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and the more perfect tent He entered once and for all, into the holy places, not by means of the bloods of goats and calves, but by means of His own blood, His own sacrifice, thus securing for us an eternal redemption. 
everlasting. Hebrews 10.11 says, Every priest stands at, the serv- at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. 2020 hindsight of the New Testament. It can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. A group of us recently, we went and attended a banquet for a mission organization that Calvary Chapel here supports called PUMA, Pennsylvania United Medical Association. Uh, and their work is in the nation of Nepal. And in the nation of Paul, Nepal, something like 1% of the people that live in that nation are Christians. And all the rest of them come from a background in which their gods need to be appeased through the various sacrifices. And we heard a story of one particular fellow who came uh, to a Christian community there. He came to a church. And he heard that Jesus can take away uh, his sins based on his once and for all sacrifice. Now this man lived way up in the mountains, way high up in you know, uh, the Himalayas and so on. And he had to continually march down these mountains and get to a place to offer his sacrifices. And it was very dangerous to him to do so. And then he heard this truth that once and for all, his sin can be taken away through the sacrifice of Christ. And he gave his life to Jesus because of that truth. And here we read about that. In the Old Testament, we have these examples of these sacrifices all looking forward to Jesus. Some of you may have read your Trenton Times this week and you saw that in our community, there was a group of people sacrificing 200 goats to appease their God. And the stir, you can imagine, with the SPCA that that raised up. But this idea of these continual sacrifices, we know the truth from the Scripture that Jesus Christ sacrificed once and for all has taken away our sins. So as New Testament believers, we are able to rejoice in the redemption that comes through Christ. We can cease from our attempts to appease God because we know that Jesus has satisfied our need. Now, as we continue to move on, look at verse 4 of chapter 16. It says, And then David appointed some of the Levites as ministers before the ark of the Lord to invoke, to thank, and to praise the Lord, the God of Israel. Asaph was the chief, and second to him were Zechariah and Jael and, and a whole bunch of other names that are listed there who would play the harps and the lyres. Asaph was to sound the cymbals, Benaiah and Jahaziel, the priest. They were to blow the trumpets regularly before the ark, it tells us, of the covenant. And then on that day, David appointed that thanksgiving be sung to the Lord by Asaph and his brothers. So as we look at verse 4, we see that David appoints priests to minister before the ark. Now, unfortunately, the word minister in our society, I think, has developed a meaning which the Scriptures never intended it to have. The word minister is meant to mean the idea of to serve. So these particular priests, they were called to serve the people and God before the ark. Now we use the term minister in our culture, capital M, uh, to speak of you know a pastor, a priest, whatever it may be. They're our minister. And the reality then, if you want to continue to follow, track backwards, the reality is that a minister is a person that is called to be a servant. And unfortunately though, in many Christian circles, that's no longer the case. We don't look at the minister as the chief servant. Rather, we look at the minister as the person who is to be served. I don't mop floors. I'm the minister here. Well, if you're the minister here, you're the one very called to be the one to mop the floors. And so certainly I know, that, and you're all say, amen. Tell them, Greg, you know, tell yourself. You know, and, and, I, and I hope that I, I demonstrate that and represent that. But whatever our calling is here, you know, there are times we think, oh, finally, I'll get to arrive so I get the good parking spot by the door that says reserve for number one minister or something like that. Or hopefully I'll arrive where I won't have to do these menial tasks anymore. Other people, the new people, the young people, they can do those particular tasks. Well, we misunderstand what the Scripture is teaching when that is uh, our thinking. All of us are called to be servants. And so if you're a Sunday school teacher, you're a servant to those kids. You know, if you're a home fellowship leader, if you're an elder in our congregation, if you're a worship leader, if you're a set-up guy, whatever it may be, you are a servant in our congregation. And I think the example that Christ has set for us and the words that he gave us couldn't be more clear. So in Mark chapter 10, Jesus said this to his disciples. Now remember, Jesus is becoming a rock star in this society. Thousands and thousands of people are gathering when he comes. 
You know, so Jesus could have easily set himself up as this king somewhere. And Jesus called his disciples. And I have no doubt because his disciples were probably like a lot of us. I have uh, no doubt that many of the disciples would start thinking, all right, I'm going to be, you know, secretary of state and I'll have an office in the palace. It'll, you know, it'll overlook these three corners, whatever it may be. But Jesus called his disciples and he said to them, no, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles, they lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Amen? That's a quiet amen coming from the audience there. All right. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, the comment I will make is this. I think many of us in this congregation, myself, we serve well. We, we look to do what we need to do. We come early. We set up. We break down. We do all these things. Nobody has to ask us. We just want to be helpful. What's valuable for me to remind myself when I read that passage is the attitude of my heart. So I can do all of these tasks, but if the attitude of my heart is, no good people, they don't care about me or like that, well, then I'm in the wrong place altogether. And in my heart, I'm expecting these people should be serving me or at least alongside of me. I don't think of myself as a slave. But when I come with the right attitude and the right mindset, Lord, I'm just giving it all unto you and may you be blessed. Um, then I find that I'm able to serve much more effectively. And certainly it's a much more pleasant experience that, that comes out of my heart. And I'm sure I'm kinder uh, in the process as well. Amen? I've had some bad... Sister, <laughs> all right, good. I've had some bad uh, occasions of uh, failing as a servant. And some of them on mission trips. I remember calling the whole team into the backyard of New Orleans, some home in New Orleans, and, and just to give a talking. You know, we need to have a talking uh, to the people. It was, ask Steph Lawler, she'll tell you. It was scary. Um, so anyway, it, it's important for us to have the proper mindset to serve well. All righty? Jesus came to serve. He's our model. If you, when you get higher than him, then you can make the rules, okay? Uh, but until that point, we seek and we serve. So these guys, they're called to minister before the Ark of the Covenant, to be servants. Now, specifically, David says to them, I want you to do three things. I want you to invoke the Lord, I want you to thank the Lord, and I want you to praise the Lord. And so what I want to do is take a moment and look at those three things. The first is invoke the Lord. Now, the King James Version, it says that invoke sounds very spiritual. Ooh, invoke. He invoked the Lord. I don't know what that means, but it sounds good. You know, um, the word invoke, King James says rem to recall to mind. That's a lot easier. Right, just simply to recall something to mind. Now, I've found in my life, and maybe you're with me, I don't know, but that the negative circumstances in life, though they may be few and far between, they tend to dominate in my mind. And so the 999 good things that God has done in my life, that kind of gets crowded out, and there's that one thing. And God, this is no fair, and I can't believe this. And if you really love me, where are you? You know, these sorts of... Uh, thoughts that go through my mind. That's why it is important for us to remind ourselves of the ways that God has been active in our lives in the past. And to be telling ourselves things like, you know what, God, you've proven faithful in the past. Here's this circumstance that I'm finding a hard time trusting you, but I, I know you'll be able to prove yourself faithful again in this. God, you've demonstrated in the past that you love me. I know that you love me now. God, you've shown me that you want what's best for me. I'm going to trust that you'll bring the circumstance through to work all things for your glory. God, I know that you can be trusted. We recall to mind, we remind ourselves of the way that God has been faithful in the past. So these particular priests, they're called to invoke the Lord, to call to remembrance, the remembrance of the people, the ways in which God has shown himself good. So for instance, they might say, you know what, Lord, you spoke the word, the world into existence with but a word. I'm going to trust that you're powerful and you're strong enough. Remember God said, let there be light, and there was light. God, we know that you provided a covering for Adam and Eve when they had sinned. And you slain those animals so that their nakedness would be covered. God, I know you can provide a covering in my life. Lord, you banished Adam and Eve from the garden, and that was by your grace. So they wouldn't partake of the tree of life and live forever in that sinful state. Lord, you're gracious. You're merciful. Show me that mercy. I believe you will. How God called Abraham to himself from a polytheistic nation. And he made a covenant with him that through Abraham all the world uh, would be blessed. Through his offspring all the world would be blessed. 
and how God preserved Abraham. How God miraculously preserved the people of Israel by sending Joseph ahead. You remember? When Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery, they were going to kill him first. And they said, well, let's at least make a buck off of this guy. So they sold Joseph. The brothers sold Joseph into slavery. We learn from the Scripture that Joseph pleaded for his life and they ignored his pleadings. And they sold him off into slavery. And how God had faithfully preserved Joseph through all of that time, eventually bringing him as to the number two man in the kingdom. And as the number two man in the kingdom, how among all the other things that he was able to do, the, maybe the most significantly was that the nation of Israel was preserved because of the position that Joseph had in that nation. Now that's just the book of Genesis. And that's just some of the stories from the book of Genesis. But in each one of those, we hear those stories, or in the case here, the priests are retelling those stories, and the people are reminded, I can trust God. God has been faithful in the past. God will, has been strong in the past. He'll continue to be. So they're calling to mind, or recalling to mind, these things. I love what Jeremiah says. Maybe you've read his small little book. His big book is a little harder to read through. It's like some 60-some chapters or whatever, 52 chapters, I believe. But you can read a small book. It's Lamentations. There's five chapters in the book of Lamentations. And Lamentations, it means to lament. Lament means to cry and mourn and sigh and so on. And this is a book which is speaking of the, the condition of the nation of Israel when uh, the uh, Babylonians came in and conquered. And the cry of the prophet's heart for these people that he so desperately wanted to see repent of their sins so this judgment wouldn't have to come, but it came. And here he is crying and crying and crying. And right in the midst of that lament, Jeremiah says, but this I call to mind. You see, he invoked the Lord. And therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. He reminded himself of who God is, what God has demonstrated in the past. He invoked the Lord. It's very important for us. Difficulties may come our way, even this week. And we don't know what they're going to be. I love that song that Josh and the team just sang, you know, uh, when evening comes, let my heart, I'm messing the words up, but this idea that when evening comes, may I continue to be praising your name. You know, this idea of looking past our present difficulties to the overwhelming evidence of God's goodness in our lives. That's what we do when we invoke the Lord. So that's one responsibility that these priests are going to have uh, before the Lord. Now the second one, after they've invoked the Lord, and they called to mind all these ways that God has been good and faithful and honest and strong, uh, then they're told to give thanks. And I think this is important as well. We all know that, right? To be a people that give thanks, and yet, how often do we forget? We think of the New Testament story where the ten lepers, they go away, they, they want to be healed, Jesus tells them to go do something, they go away, and on the way, they're healed. And only one of them remembers to return. We, you know, before we get excited about living our lives and going out and seeing everybody, maybe we should go back and thank that guy. And only one of them remembers. And, and one out of ten, I think, is my life. Because, you know, God does ten good things for me, and I only really think about one to say, God, you've been so good, thank you. And so how important it is. How often do we tell our kids, now what do you say? You ever say that? Ruth, you ever say that to your kids? I'm sure you did. Uh, what do you say? And then I said, thank you. You know, that's right. You know, and, and I think God needs to say to us many times, what do you say? You know, uh, you could be dead right now, but I preserved your life. How many, yesterday, twice, driving. I almost killed myself and my whole family. And then I was like, Lord, we made it home. <laughs> Thank you. You know, land, you know, from that movie. So anyway, we forget to return to God. Here's some things that we can say. Lord, I deserve condemnation, and yet you have shown me mercy. Thank you. Lord, I could have blown a big time there and said something but you protected me from that mistake. Thank you. Lord, circumstances may not be what I'm li I like and what I would choose, but I'm confident you'll work these circumstances out for good. Thank you. So these priests, they were to serve to cultivate in the children this habit of thankfulness, the children of Israel. And, and I think we would be wise uh, to do the same in our lives. I like what Charles Spurgeon said about this idea of thankfulness. I'll read it to you. He said, all the good that we enjoy comes from God. Recollect that. Alas, most men forget it. Then he went on and he, he quoted a preacher from the late 1700s named Roland Hill. And he said, Roland Hill used to say that the worldlings were like the hogs under the oak, which eat the acorns, but never think of the oak from which they fell. 
nor lift up their heads to grunt out a thanksgiving. Yet so it is. They munch the gift and they murmur at the giver. And so many times that's us, isn't it? We don't even take a moment to look up and to remember where the acorns, so to speak, have come from. So we need to be a people that cultivate thankfulness. Work that into your life. Now the final admonition of David to these priests is to give praise. And essentially it's, it's this statement. Lord, I'm not coming here to ask for anything from you or to make any request to you. I just simply want to honor you for who you are. Now there's a place for all of us to bring requests before God. But I would suggest for the vast majority of us, the bulk of our prayer time is our list of things that we're asking God to do and to take care of. And when that is the case, our prayer life has become uh, unbalanced, if you will. If the entirety of our prayer time is asking God for things, then that's an unbalanced prayer time. And we need to be a people that make praise a daily aspect of our time with God. So you've probably heard the, uh, the acronyms that are out there, pray, you know, and the P stands for praise, and the R stands for repent, and the A is for ask, and then the Y is for yield. Well, that's a good uh, form, if you will, to bring into your prayer time. And it's to begin that time with the Lord by praising Him, just for who He is and for what He's good, and getting your mind kind of set and in the right perspective to go before Him, repenting of your sins as you come into His presence and He reveals, you know, His light shines in your life and you're like, Lord, I blew it in so many ways. I thank You for the cross. You know, this is this sin, this is this sin, and so on. Thank You for the cross. Thank You for washing me and cleansing me, washing my feet, so to speak, as He said to Peter. And then we ask, and then we yield our lives to Him. Lord, you know what? You know better than I do. I trust You and Your sovereignty and Your goodness and so on. So it's, it's a helpful acronym. There's others out there like ACTS. Uh, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. You know, it's another method. But it's much more than just simply ask, right? And so this idea of having a healthy, balanced prayer time, working praise into that. Not asking for anything, just simply honoring Him. Now as you look on verse 7, as we move on, it says, on that day David first appointed that thanksgiving be sung to the Lord by Asaph. So Asaph here was appointed to lead the people in song particularly in a song of thanksgiving. Asaph was a worship leader as well. We read in the scriptures that Asaph was the author of at least 12 different psalms. There's 12 psalms that have his name on them. Psalm 50 as well as Psalm 73 through 83, he wrote. But the words to this particular song, they were given to him, probably written, but given to him by David. Now this, these words... Uh, you can find them in their exact form in other places in the book of Psalms as well. So the first portion of the psalm is found in Psalm one, or of this song is found in Psalm 105. Second portion is Psalm 190, or excuse me, Psalm 96, and then the last portion is Psalm 106. So either they came from there, or after they came from here, they went into there, one or the other. Um, but here's David's song. Let's take a moment and look at it, starting in verse eight. It says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon His name. Make known His deeds among the people. Sing to Him. Sing praises to Him. Tell of all His wondrous works. At the end of verse 9 there. So notice what they did. First couple things, give thanks to the Lord. Second one, make known His deeds. What is it when we make known the deeds of the Lord? We recall them to mind. That's invoking the Lord. And then the third part of that is sing praises. So David had instructed them to invoke the name of the Lord, to give thanks to the Lord, and to sing praises to the Lord. And they begin, and that's exactly what they're doing. So here we see these priests are not just hearers of the words, but they're doers of the word as well. So important. Because we, we come in here, we sit, we listen, we learn. God spoke to us through our times here on a Sunday morning, through our small group studies, through our personal daily quiet time that we're having. God has spoken to our hearts, but what do we do with it? Yeah, that was good stuff, Lord. And then that's it? Or do we put it into practice? And these guys here, they're doers of the word. We would be exhorted to be as well. Look to verse 10. It says, Glory in His holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Seek the Lord for his strength and His strength. Seek His presence continually. Remembering, remember the wondrous works that He has done. His miracles and the judgments that He has utters, uttered. I should say utters. Uh, that He uttered. Uh, seek His presence continually. Very appropriate words, isn't it? Because remember, the Ark of the Covenant represented or stood for the presence of God. And now that Ark is, has been set up right in the center of Jerusalem. 
And David is encouraging, or well, through David, Asaph is encouraging the people to seek the presence of God continually. Again, a valuable thing in our lives as well, that we don't think of God on Sundays and only on Sundays, but that we are a people that are seeking the presence of God continually. We don't seek the Lord just you know, at 6 a.m. when we get up to read our Bible or before bed when we're about to go to sleep. But throughout the day, we're trying to have this conversation with the Lord. Lord, where are you? What are you doing? What are you teaching me? Um, how am I going wrong here? How can I be made right? And these sorts of things. We're seeking his presence continually. Brother Lawrence, I don't know what his last name is. Brother Lawrence, he's like Madonna. He's got one name. Um, he has a book written called uh, Practicing the Presence of God. Uh, and very helpful, small little resource I might recommend you pick up. But it's this idea of God I want you to be in every aspect of my life. I want to be in communion with you and in communication with you. Teach me how to do that. I encourage you to look at, into that resource. Now, as you look on to verse 13, reading down to verse 22, it says, O offspring of Israel, his servant, sons of Jacob, his chosen ones, he is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. Remember his covenant forever, the word that he commanded for a thousand generations. The covenant that he made with Abraham, his sworn promise to Isaac, which he confirmed as a statute to Jacob, as an everlasting covenant to Israel, saying, To you I will give the land of Canaan as your portion for an inheritance. When you were few in numbers and of little account, and sojourners in the land, wandering from nation to nation, from kingdom to kingdom, he allowed no one to oppress them. He rebuked kings on their account, saying, Touch not my anointed ones, do my prophets no harm now verse 13 through 22 notice the first few words of verse 13 O offspring of israel his servant the sons of jacob this is written to the people of israel and specifically what is spoken to these people is that they remember the way in which god called abraham when abraham didn't know god remember abraham's father terah was a polytheistic polytheist that lived some 600 miles away from the land of Israel, what would become the land of Israel. He didn't know the Lord. He didn't grow up in Sunday school and all these sorts of things. But God got a hold of Abraham's heart. God spoke into Abraham's life and he said, I am the true God and I want you to follow after me. I want you to leave this place. You're going to go to another place and I'm going to make a, a great nation come from you. So God called to Abraham in his mercy. How remarkable that is. The children of Israel are called to remember that. God protected, God preserved the nation of Israel through decades, through centuries of wandering around. God showed mercy on them despite all of Abraham's mistakes that he made. And they're recorded for us in the Scripture. Yet God continued to be faithful to the covenant that he made with Abraham. He protected their offspring, as it says in our passage, from the enemy nations. They could have easily been swallowed up by any one of those nations. They weren't preserved because of their great strength but because God had his hand upon them and he was doing a work through them. And finally, he brought them into the land that would be their own. These are the things that uh, Asaph is calling to their mind. He's invoking the Lord. He's reminding them of all of the ways that God has been faithful. And what should be the natural response of the children of Israel? Oh, God, thank you. Thank you. You are worthy. Praise you. You see, that whole process there. Now, as we look on to verse 23, Notice, we move from the nation of Israel, and it says, sing to the Lord all the earth. So now we're not just speaking to uh, these followers of God, the nation of Israel, but now this, uh, this next portion of this psalm, this song, is going to be for the people of all the earth. And it says, sing to the Lord all the earth, tell of his salvation from day to day, declare his glory among all the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised. And he is to be held in awe above all gods. For all the gods of the people are idols. They're just simply man-made. But the Lord hath made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and joy are in his place. And so here, Asaph, not just urging Israel to give the Lord the honor that he is due, but all of the earth to sing the Lord's greatness, of the Lord's greatness, and seek Him. Look at verse 29. It says, Ascribe to the Lord, O clans of the peoples. That's all the nations. Ascribe to the Lord glory to His name. Bring an offering and come before Him. Worship the Lord 
in splendor, in the splendor of holiness, tremble before him, all the earth. Yes, the world is established and shall never be moved. Let the heavens be glad, let the earth rejoice, and let them say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exalt and everything that is in it. Then shall the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for He comes to judge the earth. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. Now what's significant about this particular section is it it makes it very clear that whether a person has a relationship with God or not, they will still be held accountable for His commands in this section of the passage. So I have no relationship with God here, but it is still my duty as created of the Creator to ascribe to the Lord the glory that is due His name. Look at verse 28. It says, as I said, ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Verse 29, these people of the nations are to worship the Lord, it says there in verse 29. Verse 30 is to tremble before the Lord. And verse 31, to acknowledge that the Lord reigns. So there is a judgment that await all who stand opposed to God. Not only for their actions that they've committed against God, but also for those things that they've not done. So again, to quote the writer of the book of Hebrews, he says in Hebrews 10 that it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And so as people that know the Lord, and I suspect most of us in this room do, but as people that know the Lord through the work of Christ, we commit ourselves in a fresh way then to share that truth with the lost, to speak to the lost, to pray for the lost, to exhort the lost to come to the one that offers salvation without charge. Because we know that it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Verse 35 says, Say also, Save us, O God of our salvation. Gather and deliver us from among the nations that we may give thanks to Your holy name and glory in Your presence. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel from everlasting to everlasting. And then all the people that were gathered said, Amen. And you can imagine the the thousands of people in unison just crying out, Amen. Now the word Amen, it can be translated, so be it. Or, I agree with that particular statement. Now, we don't particularly come from a a tradition here of verbally agreeing uh, with others in prayer. But the Scripture does model that tradition. It's not a command, necessarily, but it models that um, tradition of verbally agreeing with prayer, in prayer. And I I would suggest that it might be something that we want to practice. One of the things that I have found in my life, uh, sometimes I find it hard to pray. Um, particularly I'm in groups of people. My mind maybe begins to wander. I begin to think of all the things I have to do. Sometimes I don't even really listen to your prayer. I'm thinking about my prayer that I'm going to say when you're done so you'll be impressed with me and my great prayer or something like that. Uh, And so it's hard sometimes to be in a group and pray with people. And one of the things just practically that I've discovered in my life is if I'm active during that prayer time, that is that in my mind as you're praying, I'm trying to make the determination as to whether I can agree with what you're saying or not, then I find I'm much more engaged in the prayer time. So as you're praying a prayer, if I believe in my spirit that I can say, I agree with that, or yes, or amen, amen, or something like that, or mm, mm, that's even acceptable. All right, You can even give a grunt uh, unto the Lord. Um, but I have found that it's a, it's a very valuable way or it's a, a very practical way that I can be involved in that prayer process and be more engaged. So this evening, you can come. You can try that out. We will have a time of corporate prayer. Uh, we break up our large group into smaller groups and we, we spend some time praying for things. Uh, I'd encourage you to make it out here um, and you can practice your amens. Uh, I also found if I'm the person praying and others are saying, Jay does this a lot, if others say amen, that's really encouraging to me. I don't feel like a lunatic. You know what I mean? I, I, I really thought they came from the Lord, but nobody said amen. You know, maybe I'm crazy or whatever. It, it's, it's, an, it's supportive. Uh, and so I'd encourage you, uh, work in some amens into your life. Amen and a grunt. Very good. You guys are excellent. All right, well, let's, uh, let's wrap this up. Starting in verse 37, it said, So David left Asaph and his brothers there before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, 
to minister regularly before the ark as each day required. And also Obed-Edom and his 68 brothers, his poor mom, while Obed-Edom, the son of Jeduthun, that could be like cousins and stuff, uh, and Hosah were to be gatekeepers. And he left Zadok the priest and his brothers, the priests, before the tabernacle of the Lord in the high place that was at Gibeon. So remember, only the ark is in Jerusalem. The, the rest of the furnishings of the tabernacle, they continue to be back, as it says here in Gibeon. And so offerings are still taking place there. And Zadok the priest is responsible for that. Um, with them were Heman and Jeduthun and the rest of those chosen and expressly named to give thanks to the Lord for his steadfast love endures forever. Heman and Jeduthun, they had trumpets and cymbals for the music and instruments for the sacred song. The sons of Jeduthun, they were appointed to the gate. Now the last verse of our passage is where I want to end today. That makes sense. Uh, and it's found in verse 43. It says, Then all the people departed each to his house, and David went to his home to bless his household. Isn't that great? It's all oh, right. This is fantastic. We just had this great day worshiping the Lord and being around all those that were worshiping him as well. Now they're going to go home, and, and you know what's going to be at home. David's going to come home, and his wife is going to have a turkey dinner you know, set up there with mashed potatoes and gravy, and it's just going to be this great time, and David will be able to settle in, and his heart will still be burning you know, from the wonderful experience that he had with the Lord, and he'll tell his wife and his kids how good God was. And unfortunately, that's not what happened. And David, he, he walks into his house, and, and husbands, I'm sure you've been there, if you're a husband, uh, and you walk in your house and you can tell. And you look at your wife's face, and you know that you are in trouble for doing something. And immediately your mind begins to race, and you wonder, was I supposed to pick something up on the way home? And I forgot, and she sees my hands are empty. Is it my anniversary? What's today's date? You take your ring off and you check, and make sure you didn't miss your anniversary um, you hope maybe she's mad at one of the kids. Maybe it's not me at all. You know, <laughs> All sorts of things race through your mind. And David enters this house, and his goal is to enter in and to bless his household. He just wants to continue this worship service into his home, and he encounters that his wife is not happy at all. Now, you might be thinking, how do you know that, Greg? Well, because in 1 Chronicles 15, it said, well, we read this, 1 Chronicles 15 uh, from last week it says, Now as the ark of the covenant of the Lord came to the city of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul, Michael's a woman, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window, that's David's wife, uh, and saw King David dancing and rejoicing, and she despised him in her heart. Now we don't have the full story that is told here of what happened when David comes in expecting the turkey dinner. But we read this in 2 Samuel chapter 6, the full story. And you can look at that on your own. But the gist is that David's wife, Michael, as it says there and, and in the passage I just read, that she despises David for the way in which he's worshiping. And she says in 2 Samuel 6, the first words to hit her, David already knows he's in trouble based on her look, but the first words that she gives are how the king honored himself today. And she says it with this sarcastic sort of comment that she is making there. Now, the words used to describe the attitude of Michael's heart, as I said, it's the word despised. So David, she looked at David's act of worship and she despised him. Now, that word could mean to consider despicable or vile, but it could also mean to count utterly worthless. And essentially, she's looking at David and with her look, she is communicating to him, David, you're such a loser. You're such a loser. Look at you. You're an embarrassment of a man, she says to David. And here's David at the high point, perhaps, of his relationship with God, totally in love with the Lord, seeking to serve Him, wants to take that experience and bring it back to his home and ignite his family. And her response to him is, you're such a loser, David. Why don't you be a man and act like a man, David? And sadly, I think what you see here is that David and Michael, they were a couple, to use the New Testament phraseology, that were unequally yoked spiritually. Now, a yoke, we talked about this before, a yoke was the device that was put around the necks of two animals so that they could pull the plow. And you could double the output 
of you know the guy that is driving the plow because you've got two ox there that are strapped together and they have to go together with one another. They've been yoked together. And the idea that when something that is unequally yoked is where you take two animals that aren't meant to go together. You take a bull and a goat. Well, you, you're trying to double the output, but you're not going anywhere because they are unequally yoked. They're different sizes, different weights, and they're not going to have any success working together. And in the same way as in the animal kingdom, the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians, he makes the connection to us in our relationships. And usually we apply it to the people that we're going to marry and things like that, but it can apply to the people that we work with in the business field and, and all these sorts of things. If two people have completely different worldviews, it's going to be impossible for those people to walk together in unison. And if this particular person wants to live his life for Christ, and wants to honor Christ, and wants to do things in a way that matches or marks integrity, and the other person doesn't want to go in that direction, or they want to live for self, or they want to live for pleasure, or they want to cut corners, or they want to get a, a quick, a get quick, rich scheme, you get the idea there, they're going to have difficulties, they're going to have a problem. Now for some of us, I know, we're in a situation, we're in a marriage, and our husband or our wife doesn't know the Lord. He's not interested in knowing the Lord. You're already married and, and here you are now. You're in this particular place here. And you really want to move forward in your walk with God. And they don't necessarily want to do so. And I understand that that's a great challenge for your life. And as, quite honestly, there's not much necessarily you can do about it. And the Apostle Paul says that. He says, as long as they'll continue with you, you need to continue with them. And that your household is purified as a result of that, it speaks of. But for that individual, we encourage that person to be praying that the person would be won over by their love for them and their love for Christ. We pray that they would be able to handle that circumstance and to be able to just forgive and to swallow, take it in and to swallow and uh, to, to bear with the other individual and cry out to God that He would be merciful and bring that person to Himself as well. But the, the point that I really want to speak boldly to and I think of the many, many people that I've talked to in the past that are in a relationship with a person who is totally uninterested in God and looks at their relationship with God as something that is worthless. And look at all, why do you keep going to that church? You're there like three hours on a Sunday. Then you want to go back out in midweek and you want to join some small group or something. And they look at that person and they denigrate that particular person who's struggling with that. They will tell you, man, this is hard. And so the person that I want to speak to is the person that does is not yet in a relationship. They're not married yet or something. They're not bound by that covenant that they took. I want to speak to that person. Choose wisely. Now some people think, yes, she got saved. She prayed some prayer. I kind of manipulated her words a little bit, but she prayed some prayer. She's a Christian now. You can still be unequally yoked even if the other person is a Christian. It's the, you know, you could have a small cow and a big cow. You know what I mean? And so it's this idea of equally yoked. My wife encourages me in my walk with the Lord. If you had to kind of rank us as who's more Christian, spiritual, she'd probably win. And it's because of her that I'm spurred to continue to move forward. And what I'm very concerned about in my life is that I'm not pulling her back and dragging her down to my level, but instead I'm trying to hurry up and keep up with what God is doing in her life as well. That's the person, that's the type of mate that you want to have. You want to have a person in your life that's going to spur you on toward godliness. And not only with your husband or your wife, but who is your close circle of friends? Who's that knit of people that speak into your life, that encourage you in your faith? Are they propelling you forward in your walk with the, in your life? Or do you have to continually take a shower when you come out of that crowd to cleanse yourself, so to speak, from those circumstances? You can't, I'm not saying you can't be acquaintances and friends with other people here, but that knit of people, that source of encouragement, those people that are speaking into your life, you want to make sure that they are a people that are a blessing to you. You know, a few weeks ago, Bill Shea did our announcement time here. It was, uh, it was the last Sunday of September. And the women had just, uh, they'd been away and they were still away on the women's retreat. And during Bill's announcement time, he mentioned that the wives, you know, they'll be coming home early this afternoon. And he encouraged us as husbands. And his encouragement was something to the effect of, you know, don't go off duty, he said. Stay on duty a little while longer when your wives come home. And I knew exactly what Bill meant, you know, because I'm 
watching the kids and doing all sorts of things, and I'm crazy, and I had a full head of hair, but I pulled it all out, you know, this sort of thing. And things are going crazy, and my wife pulls in the driveway, and I say, here are your kids. And then I go and I take a nap, or I go and I get out of the house or something like that. And Bill's suggestion was, stay on a little while longer. Because Bill knew that when his wife, Peer, came in the home, she didn't want all the problems of the weekend to come on her. But she wanted to be able to kind of settle in and that good work that God had done in her heart to continue to be a good work that was going on in here. I thought that was great wisdom on Bill's part. And I think it's very important for us as mates, as friends, whatever it may be in people's lives, that we be used to encourage other people in their walk with Him and to build them up and to do those things necessary that move them forward in their walk. Because it can be just like David walking in and seeing his wife's face. It can be an incredible buzzkill when you're flying with the Lord and to come in and that all be just turned around in an instant when, here, take your crying baby you know, away from me. Our response to God's work in our spouse or our friend's life, it can either encourage them in their walk or it can discourage them in their walk. And I would encourage each of us that we be a people that look for practical ways to keep ourselves equally yoked with our mate and with our friends so that we can move forward and and help the other person in their own walk with him. Amen? Amen. Father, I want to begin by just lifting up first, Lord, those that may be uh, moving uh, in a different step, so to speak. I know so many that have just very, very supportive husbands and wives, and and yet they're just not on the same page. And I'm grateful for the support of uh, their mate. But Lord, I also know a lot of people whose husbands and wives and, and group of friends and are just very antagonistic toward Jesus. And are just convinced that the whole thing is just foolishness. And convey that and discourage. And Father, I pray today that you would encourage that believer in that relationship. And you'd give them strength to continue to move forward and to love you well and to love their mate well. Father, that you would show your mercy upon that mate and bring them to a place of understanding. And Father, I pray for those, Lord, in our congregation that are not yet married. Lord, I pray for those that are developing friendships and relationships. Lord, that you would impress upon their hearts to choose wisely. And not just find a person that perhaps can name the name of Christ, but a person that is running hard after them, after you, I should say. Father, help us to be a people that love you with all of our hearts, that seeks you diligently, that invokes your name, gives you the thanks you deserve, and walks away praising you despite the circumstances. We pray in Jesus' name.